Let's bow our heads with me as we go to the Lord in prayer once more to ask God's blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we do not understand as we ought to understand. We do not obey as we ought to obey. We think we know. There's so much more to discover and learn, both by study and by obedience. So we pray now, would you humble our hearts under your word? And would you raise us up? Would you encourage us, instruct us, exhort us, strengthen us? Feed us now on the bread of life, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. If you've ever been frustrated in your own reading of the Bible, then you are in good company. This morning, we will see a very wealthy and very powerful man frustrated in his personal Bible reading. And so, God sends him help by sending him a well-taught Christian. Let's open our Bibles to Acts 8, verses 26 to 40. Acts 8, verses 26 to 40. I'll read it out loud for us. Uh, we'll walk back through the story to get the point, and then we'll draw a few applications. Acts 8, verses 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began with, this script, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. We left Philip last week in Samaria City, north of Judea, doing evangelism and miracles. And now in verse 26, an angel tells him to head south of Judea, down the road that leads to Gaza, on the southern coastline of Israel. It's on the other side of the region of Judea where Philip was previously ministering. It's about 50 miles south of where Philip was. And Luke makes sure that we know it's in the middle of nowhere. Luke is saying, hey, reader, that's a desert. That road is in the middle of nowhere. 
It's where the old Philistines used to live. It's the opposite direction of where Philip had fled from Jerusalem. He went north to Samaria City. Now an angel tells him, go south down to Gaza on a desert road. That sounds a little not intuitive. It doesn't sound convenient. It doesn't sound efficient. And it seems a little weird. I mean, Philip has had a lot of success in Samaria recently. What are you doing, Spirit, telling me to go somewhere else? Are you telling me to leave a fruitful field of ministry to go to a desert place without even telling me how many people are going to be there? But Philip is a good Christian. He doesn't question it. Immediately, like an Old Testament prophet, he gets up and goes where he's told, no questions asked, no objections made. Verse 27, Philip encounters the CFO of the Ethiopian kingdom, which is not modern Ethiopia, but modern Sudan, just south of Egypt. It's unclear whether the queen herself is traveling in this party with him, and that's not really what Luke cares about anyway. Luke zeroes in on this one official, an Ethiopian eunuch. And he really wants you to know that this guy's a eunuch. He mentions the fact that he's a eunuch five times. So he's not a Jew. He's not even a half-Jewish Samaritan, as we saw Philip ministering to last week. This guy is apparently a full-on ethnic Gentile, but a God-fearer who had come to worship in Jerusalem. Not only that, he's serving in a pagan royal court as the queen's treasurer. And to do that, he had to be a eunuch. A eunuch was a man deliberately, physically disabled from any sexual activity or desire in order to serve in a royal court in a way that could never be accused of disloyalty or abuse. Remember, he's serving a queen, not a king. So he has to be physically unable and unwilling to assault a woman. And that deliberate inability was a professional qualifying asset for him. He could either put that on his resume already when he applied for the job, or it was a prerequisite operation he had to get before he got the job. Either way, it was important for him. And it was a qualifier. But in a Jewish Old Covenant worship setting, being a eunuch was a liability not an asset. It was a disqualifier. Leviticus 21.20 forbid anyone like this man from serving as a priest. And Deuteronomy 23.1 specifically forbid anyone like this man from ever entering the assembly of the Lord. He couldn't go to Old Testament church because he wasn't whole. This bachelor was not eligible for women, and he was not eligible for worship in the temple either. And theologians agree that he could not have been a proselyte to Judaism like Rahab, for example. He had to come to Jerusalem to worship as a God-fearer, that's for certain. He was like Cornelius in that way, that we'll meet in chapter 10, but his position as the queen's treasurer would have probably given him away as a eunuch, and he might have even been excluded on that basis from the court of the Gentiles in the temple as a result. He would have felt himself to be an outsider to the very worship he had traveled three months to offer from south of Egypt to Jerusalem. He would get there only to be able to participate on the fringe of worship. But he was interested. And he was devoted. He was so interested, in fact, that as a member of the royal entourage, he had somehow obtained a scroll copy of the book of Isaiah for himself. Now look, there was no Crossway Publishing. There was no IVP. There was no Eerdmans. You had to be a wealthy person to get a copy of this scroll for yourself. And you had to be very interested and you had to know the right people and you had to be inconvenienced to get a hold of it. 
I don't know what hoops this guy jumped through to get his own copy of the scroll of Isaiah in the first century, but he cared. It mattered to him. He did what he had to do, and he paid what he had to pay. And one of the questions I think Luke wants us to ask is how in the world did that scroll land in the lap of an Ethiopian eunuch? Of all people to be reading (laughs) the book of Isaiah, man, this guy, how does that happen? You are supposed to marvel at God's providence in this. Now, he's probably not reading Hebrew. He's probably reading the Septuagint, the Greek translation, since that's was one of the most common languages in the Roman Empire and in Egypt for commerce. Still, Luke wants you to be impressed that he's reading Isaiah at all. I mean, this guy is likely reading Isaiah in Greek. That's probably not his first language. He's interested enough to have it in his lap. He's interested enough to bring it on his three-month trip. He wanted some good reading to do, and he didn't bring a novel. The Spirit somehow tells Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip runs to him, hears him reading Isaiah out loud. I mean, it's funny to picture this in your mind, isn't it? Like, I think Philip's jogging. (laughs) Beside a chariot that looks pretty royal. So Philip runs to him, hears him reading Isaiah out loud, and Philip doesn't need another word from the Spirit He knows what to do. Philip will take it from there. Got you. Got you, Lord. I know what to do. So he asked the guy in kind of funny language, do you understand what you're reading? Now, it doesn't come through in Greek. That's a play on words. Do you understand what you're trying to understand? Can you really read what you're reading? You know what's going on in that text? Do you understand what you have undertaken here? Do you grasp what you are holding in your hands. And the guy answers him, well, how can I unless someone guides me? Even that is ironic. He's on a road, and he needs guiding through the text that he is trying to understand but cannot comprehend. I need a guide on my way through this prophecy So here's the CFO of a royal kingdom on a road asking a perfect stranger to guide him on a very different kind of journey. There's a lot of humility to that question. He's a powerful, rich man. And he really wants to understand Isaiah. He wants to understand the part of Isaiah that you know best. And he is having trouble. And I don't know if there's frustration in his question. How can I? I I don't know how he asked that question, but he wants to understand it and he can't. And he's a man. I mean, any man who wants to understand something and can't understand something is probably going to feel a little frustrated. How can I understand the Bible unless someone guides me? He knows he needs to be taught. He knows he needs someone to teach and lead him through Scripture better than he can do it for himself. So the eunuch invites Philip to ride in the chariot with him, which indicates that Philip started the conversation with this guy while he was probably jogging alongside the chariot. So Philip climbs into the carriage, and of all the passages to be reading, the eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, 7 through 8. But the eunuch can't tell who Isaiah's talking about. How do I make sense of these pronouns? Who is he? Who's the he who was led to slaughter like a docile sheep? Who was oppressed? Who was denied justice? Whose life was taken away from the earth. Isaiah's? Or someone else's? But if we, as Luke's readers, know that part of Isaiah 53, then we know the next line of Isaiah 53, 8, 
which Luke does not include in the quote, which is stricken for the transgression of my people. Well, that's the money phrase, right? Like that, that tells you why he was stricken, who he was stricken. It doesn't tell you who it was, but it tells you why he was stricken and who he was stricken for and what the meaning of his strickenness was. So it's as if Luke wants us as readers, by not finishing the quote, he wants us as readers to feel the anticipation. To feel what it's like for this Ethiopian eunuch to be right on the cusp of understanding the gospel. You're right there, man. Just read the next line, bro. You're right there. You're almost there. One more step and you're going to get it. And then Philip opened his mouth. Sometimes that's all it takes. He opened his mouth. This had to be pointed out to me. This is a wonderful observation. Luke, excuse me, Philip opened his mouth about the sheep that kept his mouth shut under his suffering. That's a beautiful irony. The, the sheep went silent to the shearer and to the slaughterer. But Philip gets to open his mouth to tell the Ethiopian, hey, that's Jesus. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. He literally evangelized to him Jesus. The way Luke, put, Luke puts it there reminds you of Luke 24, 27, where Luke says of Jesus, beginning from Moses... And from all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, we cannot know exactly what Philip said. That'd be great, right? You had a little, little pen, a little recorder. Record that sermon. Record that evangelistic conversation. But he's probably talking about the Passover lamb. I mean, what would you talk about if you were using... Isaiah 53, 7 to 8, and you wanted to preach Jesus to this guy from the Old Testament. He's probably talking about the Passover lamb slaughtered to atone for the sins of the people. He's probably talking about Isaiah's suffering servant coming to obey in every way that Israel had disobeyed. He's drawing lines to Jesus. Jesus is that lamb of God. Jesus is that suffering servant. Jesus is the obedient son that of God that Israel failed to be. Jesus obeyed in every way we rebelled. Jesus took God's curse on the cross in our place for our sin and rebellion. So if we turn from our sins and trust in Christ, we can be reconciled to the God that we had rebelled against all our lives and His blood can cover, atone for our sin just like the blood of the sacrificial lambs and goats in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Like at the temple that you were just at, Ethiopian. And from verse 38, it's clear that Philip told him he needed to be baptized, according to Matthew 28, 18 to 20, to symbolize and publicize his union with Jesus in his death, to sin, burial under God's judgment, resurrection to new life. And as the entourage passes an oasis in the desert, the eunuch wants to be baptized right on the spot. Philip sees no reason to stop him. So the eunuch tells the driver, stop the chariot. They get out. They both go down into the water down into the water, not just beside the water, but down into the water. Philip baptizes the guy, and then they came back up out of the water. That is not a sprinkling. That is an immersion. But as soon as they come up out of the water, from being immersed in the water, the spirit carries Philip away, and the eunuch never lays eyes on him again. Well, that's no matter to the eunuch. The eunuch's just happy to be a baptized believer in Jesus and know what Isaiah 53 is about, who it's about. As for Philip, I think this is one of the most dumbfounding, funny verses in the Bible. And I think it's a really great translation. But Philip found himself 
at Azotus. <laughs> I, can't, I can't not laugh. When I, every time I read that, I have to laugh. Like, what in the world? He, he just found himself at Azotus. I, I don't know another way to read that that's not miraculous. Like, I, I know there's, there's guys out there who think that's not a miracle. He just, he just went up there and kind of wandering on, and he was just so enthralled with this conversion. of, the, And all of a sudden, he's in Azotus, and he didn't kind of realize that time just flies when you're praising God. I, I can't get there. I, I can't read this like that. I mean, if you can read that like that, more power to you. you. You can still be a member of the church and disagree with me about that. But this is 20 miles north of Gaza on the Mediterranean coastline. I mean, you don't just walk 20 miles and be like, oh, where am I now? He just found himself there. I think this is immediate supernatural transportation. As weird as that sounds, I mean, it sounds weird for me to say it. But he just found himself there as if Philip doesn't know how he got there. And he just looks around and all of a sudden he's like, uh, this is a Zotus, man. How did I get here? But as soon as he gets his bearings, he preaches the gospel to all the towns that he came to, and to, came to until Caesarea. I mean, it's almost as miraculous that he just was like, well, I guess I'm in Azotus, so it's time to preach the gospel here. Heads further north, talking about Jesus to whomever he meets. And so the gospel spreads region to region, town to town, beyond the borders of Jerusalem and Judea to the ends of the earth, which is what Ethiopia was at the time. Just like Jesus said. I think the point of that whole narrative is that God is sending Christians to help outsiders understand scripture, trust Jesus, and teach others. As simple as that. God is sending Christians to help outsiders understand scripture, trust Jesus, and teach others. God is orchestrating still today these kind of providential meetings between Christians and non-Christians. Maybe he's not picking someone up and putting them 20 miles from where they were miraculously, but he's still orchestrating these kinds of meetings between Christians and non-Christians to clarify Scripture, to exalt Jesus, to spread the gospel, to convert sinners, and to plant churches all over the world. And he wants to use you. So what do we do with this passage? Well, First of all, we need to understand Jesus fulfills Scripture, and therefore he is the key to understanding it. If Philip had not preached Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch, that Ethiopian eunuch might have understood a lot of things about Isaiah 53. But he would not have understood Isaiah 53. The Ethiopian could not understand Scripture because he didn't understand who it was about. That's the question. Who is the Old Testament about? It is not, in the first instance, about you and me. It's about Jesus. When I read the Old Testament, my first question should not be, what is God calling me to do, or how is God calling me to change, or who am I in this narrative? When I, when I read the Old Testament, what I'm supposed to ask is, how does this text testify to Jesus? How is he the fulfillment of this? How is this text telling me about my need for Jesus? How is this text introducing me to a category that Jesus is going to fulfill, an office he is going to take? or a sacrifice he's going to replace, or a character trait he's going to model for me. Once you get that all Scripture points to Jesus, then it all begins to make a lot more sense to you. Jesus is the key of knowledge that unlocks Scripture's meaning and application. Scripture is going to remain locked to you until you take Christ, put it in the Bible, and turn the key. And then it opens to you. 
the law Israel broke is the law Jesus kept. The exile Israel suffered points to the exile Jesus suffered for us in his death on the cross. The rejection and suffering of all the prophets points to Jesus' rejection and suffering. He is the prophet who brings God's message and he embodies that message in his own identity. He is the priest who represents God to us and us to God and even sacrifices his own blood for us. His cleanness is not stained by our defilement, but our defilement is cleansed by his purity. Think about that when you read Leviticus. He is the temple. He is the true place where God meets man. He is everything that was special about the land because he is the presence of God. He is our Emmanuel, God with us. He is the king of God's kingdom. He is the one who leads us out of our slavery to sin into a new and better exodus. His resurrection body is the first fruits of God's new creation. And he is, as the Ethiopian discovered before us, Isaiah's suffering servant, who gives himself up to God's judgment to atone for the sins of his people. He is God's sacrificial lamb, judge for our sins. To read scripture any other way is to confuse yourself. Listen, God did not give you scripture to answer all your own questions as you ask them. Look, I got a lot of questions about scripture that are still outstanding. And I don't know that I'll, they'll ever get answered the way I'm asking them. Because that's not the purpose of scripture. The purpose of scripture is not to satisfy my fallen curiosity. There are right questions to ask, and there are wrong questions to ask about Scripture. Not because they're dumb, but because Scripture doesn't answer those questions, because that's not the kind of question Scripture is designed to answer. He gave you scripture not to satisfy all of your curiosity. He gave you the Old Testament to introduce you to his son, Christ Jesus. That's why he gave it to you. When God gave you the Old Testament, he said, look, this is who my son will be for you. This is the kind of redeemer you need. This is exactly the kind of redeemer I'm getting ready to give you. So that when he comes, you will recognize him. He gave you the whole Old Testament to introduce you to all the categories, offices, needs, and functions Jesus would satisfy. And he gave you the Gospels to show you Jesus fulfilling those categories in his life, ministry, death, and resurrection. And he gave you the epistles to explain what that fulfillment means for you and me as we live in response to what Jesus did. It's just like your middle school composition teacher taught you. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them. And then tell them what you told them. That's the Bible. The Old Testament. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Gospels, I'm telling you. I'm showing you. Epistles, see what I showed you? I showed you this. That's what that meant. That's how it works. The Bible is not a philosophy book. It's more than that. It is a personal introduction to Jesus. And if you try to read it in order to satisfy your vain curiosity or to titillate your intellect, you will get turned around. You'll get lost because you're abusing it and God knows it. 
God gave you scripture to introduce you to Jesus. He says, here, meet my son. And you are using it to justify yourself or to revel in your intellectual vanity. Don't do that. Don't do that. Meet Jesus in scripture like God wants you to. And then it will yield to gentle pressure. It will open itself to you if you use it rightly. Use it for what God gave it to you to do. Next application. All people from all places need to be saved from the guilt of their sins. Look, the Ethiopian eunuch didn't need a different gospel. He didn't need a different religion. He didn't need a different Bible. He didn't need a different Savior. He didn't even need a person of the same skin color to give it to him. He needed Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, explained to him in a Christ-centered way. That's all he needed. And he did need it. Because every person on every continent has the same main problem. It's sin. And it's not other people's sin against them. It's their sin against God, just like it's my sin against God. Nobody gets a pass. Everybody has the same problem. Because Jesus is the meaning of all Scripture, Jesus is also the meaning of Christmas. Christmas celebrates the incarnation, the birth of God's eternal Son, born as a human person in a human body. Now ask yourself, why did the first Christmas ever need to happen in the first place? Why did God the Son become a man? Why did the second person of the eternal triune God take on human flesh never to take it off again? That is a big deal. There must have been a big problem that needed a big solution to have that big of a thing have to happen. It was so that he would have a human body and blood to sacrifice in our place for our sins on the cross. Look, the second person of the Trinity does not need a body like men. He got along for eternity past just fine without it, in perfect glory and fellowship with his Father. He doesn't need that. We needed him to have it so that he could give it up in our place for our sins as the penalty we deserved for our rebellion against his Father. Again, he did not become an angel to sacrifice himself for fallen angels in hell. He became a human person to sacrifice himself for people on earth. If all he was doing in becoming a person was teaching us how to love each other, the incarnation was overkill. If all he's doing at the cross is teaching us how to love each other, that's overkill. The incarnation needed to happen because the cross needed to happen. And a disembodied Savior cannot be pinned to a cross. He cannot bleed. And he cannot die. And here in Acts 8, we discover that Jesus did not just do that for the Jewish nation. He did it for people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He did it even for outsiders like you and me and this Ethiopian eunuch. You know who you are in this text? You're not, first of all, Philip. Everyone else goes, man, I wish I could be an evangelist like Philip. Hey, have you ever identified with the Ethiopian eunuch before? Because that's who you are in the first place. You're the outsider. You're the guy who doesn't know what to make of Isaiah 53. And you're the guy who doesn't get into the temple because it's locked out against you. Because you're not worthy to enter. That's you. 
with all of us. God loves to gather and save cultural and spiritual outsiders like us. This man was an Ethiopian eunuch. That is not, though, a brand new demographic in Scripture. There is one prior Ethiopian eunuch mentioned in the Bible. And it's in Jeremiah 38, 7. And his name, strangely enough, is Eved Melech, which means servant to the king. The Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, who heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the reservoir, the mud pit, because of Jeremiah's preaching. Jeremiah had preached repentance and judgment. Judas king and his men didn't want to hear any of it, so they threw Jeremiah into a man-made reservoir as a joke. Let's get rid of this guy. Let's throw him down into the reservoir. (laughs) Sink down there, buddy. How's it feel in the mud? You're not preaching to anybody down there, are you? Eved Melech, the Ethiopian eunuch of all people, is the one who has to speak a word to the king on Jeremiah's behalf, and it is the word of that Ethiopian eunuch that got Jeremiah out of the mud. So when Luke introduces the Ethiopian eunuch, he introduces a demographic that has a history of being an outsider who becomes an insider and who is a servant to the king. And this Ethiopian eunuch, by God's grace, becomes a servant to the king of kings. He's the first African convert. But it's not just Ebed Melech in the background. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he asked God, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, like the Ethiopian eunuch, when he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. And guess what's happening right here? I'll bet you, (laughs) I'll bet you dollars to donuts that that Ethiopian eunuch had been reading Isaiah 53 on the way up to Jerusalem. And he was praying, would you give me somebody to explain this thing to me? And on his way down from Jerusalem, prayer is answered. And 1 Kings 8 is fulfilled for him. In fact, God gives a promise to just such outsiders in Isaiah 56.3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people, because I'm not a Jew. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. I'll never have children. I'll never have a legacy. I'll never leave behind anything or anyone. For thus says the Lord. Don't you say that, eunuch. Don't you say that, foreigner. Because I'm going to make you a promise. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better, better than sons and daughters. You think a son or daughter is a good gift? Watch what I give you, childless Christian. Watch what I give you. I will give you better. I'll give you better. A name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off, and for the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Evid Melech, servants of the king. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it. See how important it is for God, for his people to observe his day? Everyone who holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. 
The Ethiopian's nationality is important too. Ethiopia was called Cush in the Old Testament. Psalms 68, 31 said, Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush, Ethiopia, shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. And here it is, a nobleman, CFO, from Cush, Ethiopia, stretching out his hands to God. And listen to Psalm 87, 4. Among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. That's a prophecy of new birth, naturalization. I know you were born in Cush. But in my record book, you were born in the temple. And you belong with me right here, no matter where you're from. You belong with me. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are one of ours. And that's what happens to this Ethiopian eunuch. He was reborn spiritually right here on his way back from Jerusalem as Philip preached Jesus to him from Isaiah 53. Brothers and sisters, God is still sending Christians to outsiders so that they can understand Scripture, trust Jesus, and tell others. God has always cared about outsiders. He cared about you. He cared about you when you were an outsider. So, do you care that other people are still outsiders like you were? Do you care? God is an outward-looking God. He's seeking people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's what He's doing. Is that what you're doing? When's the last time you sought someone to become a worshiper of God in Christ? He is seeking sinners to save, and we then should be an outward-looking church and outward-looking Christians. God is a gathering God. We should be a gathering church, and you and I should be gathering Christians, gathering up other souls into God's saving purposes for them. As you learn Scripture here, the design is for you to speak it to others who are not here so that they might be gathered here with us in repentance towards God and trust in Christ. God loves to take outsiders and make them his insiders. That's what he did with the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's sending us still today to seek outsiders who will become insiders with us to the grace and glory of the gospel. Another application. The Spirit does guide us, but he doesn't talk to us as he did to Philip. Don't read this and think, why doesn't the Spirit say that kind of thing to me? Don't think that. Jim Osmond, in his book, <laughs> provocatively entitled God Doesn't Whisper, <laughs> notes that there are 14 examples of people in Acts receiving direct divine guidance. But of those 14 instances, 10 come on just five separate historical occasions to just three people. Peter, Paul, and our brother Philip here. Philip's the only non-apostle that it happens to in all of Acts. And these happen over 30 years. So that's one instance about every other year on only nine separate occasions over 30 years between about 32 AD and about 62 AD from Jesus' resurrection to Paul's trial. So when you put it that way, supernatural divine guidance like Philip gets here is not even normal in Acts. And every one of those instances is directly related to the spread of the gospel. So I don't want any of you coming to me after the service today saying, I got a word for you, bacon. Well, I get that word all the time, man. <laughs> like, that's not special. Don't talk to each other like that. There was no supernatural guidance on who to pick as the first deacons, and that was a very important decision in Acts 6. 
There wasn't even any supernatural guidance at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 on how to receive Gentiles into the church and whether they should live kosher or not. And that was a huge decision. Or who to send to deliver that message to the churches? It was Saul's conversion. Ananias' visit to Saul. I mean, if you were Ananias, you would have needed a word for the Lord to exercise hospitality to Saul with the way he was treating Christians before that, wouldn't you? Yep. Cornelius visiting Peter and vice versa. Paul and Barnabas set apart as missionaries. Paul sent to Macedonia and then later told to stay in Corinth. It's that level of stuff. And it didn't happen every day. It happened every other year. What's more, no one in Acts ever thought there was any ambiguity to it. You know? You hear some people talk about this kind of thing, and they're like, ah, I must have gotten it wrong. Nobody in Acts got it wrong. They always heard it, understood it, obeyed it, saw good from it, and it was always about the spread of the gospel. Now, if there were only nine separate instances over those 30 eventful years, then are we really supposed to expect to hear the voice of God today just like Peter, Paul, and Philip? It's okay that you don't hear the voice of God like this. You're not supposed to. Because you have scripture. You have a completed canon of 66 books in the Bible. Until you've mastered those 66 books of what God has really said to you, don't ask for something else. And look, if, if we, even if we did hear God's voice like this, would we really be satisfied if it only happened nine times over the next 30 years in the whole global church? I'm not sure that would be enough for us. Another thing we should think about, obscurity is not insignificance. Obscurity is not insignificance. Insignificance. There, I said it right. God's Spirit told Philip to leave the cosmopolitan bustle of Samaria City where everyone was paying attention to his priest. Can you imagine? Everybody was paying attention to, to Philip the way that everybody used to pay attention to their local magician, sorcerer. That must have been electric. But the Spirit tells him, travel 50 miles south to a desert road in the middle of nowhere, and I'll tell you what to do when you get there. We have no idea how Philip felt about that. It's not really important how he felt. But just look at that fact and Philip's obedience. That is not intuitive to us. Why leave a big city where everybody is paying attention to him and go to a desert? You're telling me leave downtown Singapore where there's tons of converts being made and you're telling me to go to the Sahara on some road out there? while all this is happening in Singapore and the church is being built up and everybody's listening to me preach the gospel? And now you want me to leave? Whose voice is this again? Well, it's not mine, that's for sure. <laughs> but he obeys. The Spirit just gives the command and Philip goes from being a well-known man in a well-known place to an obscure desert road. But obscurity is not insignificance. And many of us need to preach that to ourselves. Obscurity is not insignificance. You may feel totally obscure, totally unknown, totally insignificant. Do not confuse your obscurity with insignificance. There are very significant things going on. Homeschool mom, stay-at-home mom, in your discipline of your disobedient son. That's very significant to God. God has something significant for Philip in the obscurity of that desert road. That desert road is where Africans first heard the gospel of Jesus from Isaiah 53. And God has something significant for you in the middle of what you may feel is total obscurity. And God is still converting normal people as Christians, help them understand the Bible. This Ethiopian eunuch was a normal guy, and Philip was pretty normal. I mean, miracles aside, I get it, that's not normal. But miracles aside, he didn't work a miracle on the desert road. 
Philip doesn't seem like a normal Christian to us because he's in Scripture and he was able to perform miracles, but there's no miracle here with a eunuch. All Philip does is explain Isaiah 53 to a guy who's reading it. I mean, you could have done that. Now, I get it, too, that we don't seem to encounter a whole lot of people today who are already reading Isaiah 53 and wondering, who is this guy? This seems so ideal as an evangelistic encounter. It is ideal, but that's why we are praying together on Sunday nights for more unbelievers to be more interested in the Bible. It's why we're praying for more Bible reading friendships with unbelievers. It's why we trained you in the adult ed class to use two ways to live with unbelievers and just for starters with new believers. So look out, look around. Who can you speak the gospel to? Who can you use those gospel tools with? Who can you start a Bible reading friendship with? Who can you help as they try to understand the Bible? Pray, Christian. Pray to be a more effective and fruitful evangelist. Pray for more opportunities. Because the teaching ministry of the church equips you to help others explain the Bible. That's the design. How in the world did Philip know how to preach Jesus to the Ethiopian from Isaiah 53 to begin with? Where did he learn that? Where did Philip learn it? He didn't just wake up one day able to do that. I think he knew it from how he received the Apostles' ministry of preaching and prayer in Acts 6.4. I think that's one of the reasons he became a deacon. Because he valued the ministry of the Word so much that he was like, guys, I don't want you guys serving tables. I want you guys serving the Word of God so I can learn how to explain Jesus from the Old Testament better. I'll serve the tables. You guys serve the Word and train me as an evangelist. And look at the fruit of that here in Philip's own evangelism. The public preaching and teaching of this church is not designed to please or entertain you. I mean, I don't want to, on purpose, displease you. But I don't just want to entertain you. And I don't just want to please you. This teaching is designed to train and equip you to become more conversant, more articulate, more equipped to have conversations about the Bible with unbelievers and with poorly taught Christians who come your way. That is how churches grow deep and broad. I want this church, this congregation, to have a reputation out there in Elgin and in Fox Valley that when people come to you with Bible questions, you actually have a few answers for them that they were not anticipating. And they ask you, where did you go to church? Where did you get that answer? How did you become this kind of Christian? Where are you getting that kind of wisdom for me? Because I came to you crying and hurting and wondering and clueless, and in five or ten minutes, you had set me straight. How did you do that? That's how it's supposed to work. And so we can and should proclaim Christ from all of Scripture in our own evangelism. Philip models proclaiming Christ from all of Scripture. He began. He began with Isaiah 53. He didn't end there. He begins there. Just like Jesus, he begins from one Scripture, moves through Scripture to other Scriptures to help the poorly taught understand the Bible's message about God's holiness and our sin, our liability to hell, God's provision for our forgiveness and freedom and righteousness in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and the call to turn from sin and self to trust wholly in Christ, to be reconciled to God. So Christian, use Scripture in your own evangelism. Read the Bible with unbelievers. Read the Bible. Look, I'll bet you, I'll bet you, you know more about the Bible than your unbelieving friend does. Your unbelieving friend knows what his undergraduate professor said wrongly about the Bible. That's what your friend knows. Your friend knows what some special on the History Channel told them that the Bible says. They don't know what the Bible says. And they've never heard it talked about from a believing perspective where faith is seeking understanding and actually got it and can articulate it to them. That'll blow them away. They've never met somebody like you. And I wouldn't be a good Baptist if I didn't say that believer's baptism by immersion is part of responding to the gospel. How did the Ethiopian eunuch know to be baptized when he saw water by the side of the road? He didn't just intuit that, right? Like, he got that from somewhere. Philip had to preach that to him as part of responding to the gospel. And please note carefully again, they both went down into the water and they both came up from the water. That is full immersion of a believer, not just 
sprinkling. It's like in John 3.23 where John was baptizing near Salem because water was plentiful there. Water was plentiful. When it comes to baptism, we would readily acknowledge subject, the person being baptized, is more important than mode, immersion or sprinkling. What's most important is that the person being baptized, the subject, is already a believer. But the mode is important too. Immersion, submersion, going all the way down under the water, is the best visible representation of being buried with Jesus in death to sin and then rising with him to new life. You're being buried under the flood waters of God's judgment with Christ, like Noah floated on the flood waters. And that's a picture of baptism. Now, some Christians are eager to point to the eunuch's baptism here as a reason to say that we can baptize any believer anywhere, anytime. That conclusion, though, is probably not as careful as it should be. Baptism is an ordinance for the local church. Jesus gives it to the disciples in Matthew 28, 18-20. It's the initiation rite into the visible body of Christ. You are baptized into one body. So the visible body of Christ is the best context for performing baptisms. That's why we do them here with you guys present. Or if we were to do them in the Fox River, we would do them with you guys present. Not just with two people. This one, the Ethiopian eunuch's baptism, happens in the middle of nowhere, not as the rule, but as the exception. This is the Ethiopian eunuch, the ultimate outsider, becoming the first baptized convert sent back to his own country with the gospel. This man has no local church to be baptized into. Not yet. He is the first Christian convert on his continent, and so this individual baptism outside the context of a local church gathering, again, is not the rule. It's the exception. Because he's the first Gentile African convert to Jesus. So we should not think that it is somehow quaint or attractively primitive or biblically faithful for one Christian to baptize another in the middle of nowhere or in their backyard pool with no one else watching, witnessed by no one, we should still practice baptism as we practice the Lord's Supper together, gathered in public gatherings of visible local churches as a visible way of declaring our devotion to Jesus in solidarity with his, biblical ch with his visible church. Finally, again, this is a little tangential, but it's there. A Christian can work for a non-Christian government. What? Where did he get that? Well, Philip did not call the eunuch to quit his job as a CFO for the Ethiopian queen. Romans 16.23, Paul says, Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. Erastus was another city treasurer in Corinth, much like the eunuch here is for his queen, and he's treated by Paul as a brother in the Lord who greets other brothers and sisters in Christ. So unless your government job involves you in direct sin, makes you sin, you don't have to change jobs because you got converted to Christ. When tax collectors come to be baptized by John the Baptist and ask them what they should do, the Baptist told them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him likewise, and we, what do we do? And he said to them, not quit the Roman army. He said to them, don't extort money from anybody by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. Ooh, <laughs> that one, why do you have to add that one? Be content with your wages. That, that cuts us all, doesn't it? The Baptist does not tell Roman government workers or Roman soldiers to quit their jobs in pagan governments. He tells them not to abuse their power, and it's the same here with the Ethiopian eunuch. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 7, in whatever condition you were called to Christ, there remain with God. What was your job status? What was your marital status? Where were you living? What kind of house do you have? What kind of car were you driving? Just keep it. Stay there. Live that life. But live that life as a Christian. That's what the Ethiopian eunuch can feel free to do. He's free now to be a Christian who serves as a CFO to the Ethiopian queen. Friend, if you're having trouble understanding your Bible, you're not alone, but maybe you can use some help. Any of us here would be glad to help you see Jesus in all of Scripture, but you'll have to be humble enough to ask, for, to invite and then accept a little guidance from someone who might have already had more opportunities than you to learn. And Christian, I hope this kind of Thing, this kind of evangelism sounds invigorating to you. Using your Bible to help somebody else understand it better? Because this is what the Lord is doing in the world still today. He is sending Christians to help outsiders understand Scripture, trust Jesus, and teach others. 
And maybe, maybe it's time to start praying that he would send you. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have sent to us others outside this room before this time to teach the gospel to us, to help us understand our Bibles better, help us understand what Jesus did, who he is, why he mattered, why we need him. We praise you for sending Jesus himself to help us understand your word and our need for what you have done for us in the gospel message of Christ crucified and risen from the dead. So we pray, would you make us more ready, more willing, more conversant, more articulate, more helpful, more faithful and fruitful. Send us, send us to unbelievers here to help them understand your word. Move in their hearts before we even get to them. Give them a new interest in the Bible so that when we get to them, they'd already be interested and they'd already be asking questions and there'd be low-hanging fruit and it would be invigorating for us to see them understand the gospel for the first time and see you unlock the gospel for them with the key of David, the key of knowledge, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.